This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by StoreTasker. Do you need a great Shopify developer? StoreTasker has a hand-selected community of the industry's top Shopify developers and e-commerce experts. So far, StoreTasker has helped over 30,000 Shopify brands find a trusted and talented developer for projects big and small. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 52 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Neeraj Gunzagar, the CEO of Byte. Acquired by Densplike Serona for over a billion dollars in an all-cash deal in less than three years, Byte is a top-rated, mission-driven leader disrupting the dental industry by giving customers access to at-home invisible aligners that deliver professional results in half the time and cost of competitors. In this episode, Neeraj shares with us his journey from growing up in the Bay Area with immigrant parents to studying business at Berkeley to working at TrueCar for seven and a half years where he transitioned from CRO to CMO to meeting with Scott Cohen, the co-founder of Byte, for a marketing jam session which ended up turning into a CEO recruiting opportunity. He talks with us about how his parents had an arranged marriage, how he's grown as a leader, why ego is the enemy, and why focusing on customer experience and capital efficiency has led to enormous growth at Byte. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and please leave us an awesome review. We'd really appreciate it and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Neeraj. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your journey in becoming CEO of Byte. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So where did you grow up? Let's start from the very beginning, your uh, childhood. Where are you from? So I was, I'm from the Bay Area. So um, born and raised in a, in a town called Saratoga um, up in Northern California. Uh, my parents are immigrants, so they uh, came over. My father actually came over here. Um, as a, um, a silicon engineer, so a computer chip guy in the 60s uh, wow. out in Ohio. 
And then he had an arranged marriage uh, with his wife in India, and then he brought her to Ohio. Um, they didn't love Ohio, and so they moved out to California in the early 70s, and they had my brother and I. Um, and he was at some of the, you know, some of the, the most famous companies, um, you know, back then, Fairchild and IBM, and then a bunch of different, you know, the true Silicon Valley was built out of silicon, right? And those are chips. And so my father was part of that. And then me and my brother grew up in a beautiful town. It's near the mountains, near Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, and we just, we had a pretty normal childhood, right? I mean, we, we grew up in a, in a fairly affluent neighborhood and, and we played sports, um, um, but was always, you know, always had to do really well in school, right? That's the real Asian way of, of parenting is to make sure that our grades were high. So that's right. where I was born and that's where I was raised and played baseball my whole life and, and sports. And, and then I went over to Berkeley and, and did my college at Berkeley. So interesting that your parents had an arranged marriage. What was like, what was that like growing up? I mean, that's so fascinating. I don't think I've ever met anybody who had parents with as, that were arranged. What does that mean? Like, how were they arranged? And yeah, no, it's, it's a great story. I, I, it's funny, as you get older in life, you actually start to, you know, you probably, you've probably done this as well. You actually start to build a different friendship and relationship with your parents, right? Mm -hmm. And so you start asking them questions about these things. And, yeah. And arranged marriage is ba basically, my father was, a, um, was, in, was studying, is doing his master's in, in electrical engineering in Ohio. And, you know, he was 28, 29, and his parents said it's time to get married and have kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so he got to look at, you know, I think 16, 17 pictures and it's called biodata. If you watch any of these new Netflix shows that are on TV, they talk about like Indian marriages and Indian there is marriages. one that I love. I don't know the title. I ran through, I like binge watched it. It was so Indian good. Probably. It's fascinating. Yes. That's yeah. exactly the one. So she, he gets, he got the biodata from a, a bunch of women and he chose my mother. And then he he met her on the day of their wedding, and you know it was off to off to the races. After that, they they moved. She moved my mom, who was from a small village um, in northern India, and she moved from a small village in India to um, to Dayton, Ohio. Hmm. Um, and so um, that was it's quite interesting. And so my mother had never met my father, and then they got married. And, and what they really connect on, to be honest with you, and it's really fascinating, is as you start to think about the dating sites that are here and all these things, what they don't match you on, um, which is for longevity in a relationship is values. All, most of the dating sites and stuff like that are purely swipe right, swipe left. And it's, you know, 80, yeah. 90 physically related, right? Right. And what your parents do for you, even though you might despise them for that, is they've instilled values in you. Mm -hmm. um, and those values, when they connect with other parents with the same values, they're actually not that bad about picking a long-term partner. Short-term, you have some hiccups, right? Because you're just meeting that first day. But once you get a, a good marriage or a good long-term relationship, a lot of that passion and impulse goes away after a while. And you, what do you connect on? You connect on values. Yes. And so um, that's the beauty. And, and, and divorce rates are really low in the culture. And some will say that it's, it's, it's mainly due to the values and the principles of sticking through things. Mm -hmm. and being there through thick and thin and some people will say like well there's a lot of miserable you know indian women or indian men out there that stick in unhealthy marriages but i i really do believe it balances out well that happens even if you're not arranged right yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of unhealthy and unhappy married people you know that were not in arranged marriages i think yeah. the the term arranged too maybe it's because of all the movies that are out there that are make it seem so horrible that you're marrying for someone that's 
outside of love, right? Like you're just getting paired up with someone and there's nothing really there. There's no love. They don't love each other, but it's, it's not really that way. It just sounds like arranged is more about the matchmaking process. Yeah. It's yeah. about the values and the, you're right. The matchmaking concept. But then when you, you really like, we, we can get into the history of marriage and all these things, but marriage was wealth preservation, right? That's mm -hmm. why it was created between families, you know, in the early stages. So it's transitioned into something very different, which is passion and love and, and, but listen, you, you know, you've got friends that are probably married. I've got friends that are married, you know, after five, 10 years, you really do connect on your values. Yeah. And, and, and if you don't, if that love and passion will, you know, be there even stronger yeah. when you've got that, that, that value connection. So, so I find it fascinating. I, I, I talked to my mom a lot about it because my father passed away last year. So we, we really got to connect on certain things about this, but you know, in the end, they were married for, you know, 50 years. Right. Interesting. It's funny, because I met my husband on Tinder. And when when I was swiping, you know, right, there's no boxes for values. So I got like, really lucky. But you're right, that's an aspect that's missing in the kind of digital matchmaking world today. Yeah. Um, so moving forward, um, you went to Berkeley. And um, before we get there, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid, you played baseball? Did you I have any be, idea what you wanted yeah, to be? Yeah, no, I wanted to be a baseball player. So <laughs> you want to go I, pro. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was a pretty decent baseball player in, 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 in high school and then played, in, you know, my freshman year, a little bit of college just to try out and stuff like that. But eventually I reached the limit on what I, what I could do in the baseball side of it. And, uh, I focused on business and there's a great business school an undergraduate business school at, at Berkeley called the Haas School of Business. And when I first got there, I, I pledged a fraternity and I was trying to play spring baseball and I, you know, didn't do really well at school because you got this massive adjustment, right? You're going from high school, you're going to college, you're enjoying the college life. And it's really difficult to get into that, into that business school because you apply after your sophomore year. And I should do, it's funny. I was just telling my oldest son, I told, told him this story because I'm pretty hard on him. I'm on grades. And uh, when I told him I had gotten a 2.7 GPA and I never gotten a B in high school. So I, so it was a, it was a, it was a shock to my, my family system. Um, but then after that, you realize that they're actually trying to, they're trying to grade performance. Like, did you turn it around mm -hmm. and did you have the growth? Because everybody has a little bit of an adjustment period. Mm -hmm. um, and I told my son that and he was super happy that I got a 2.7 because, you know, he does really well in school, but then he can kind of poke and prod me a little bit, but right. After that, I, I realized that my real calling was um, finance and business. And my brother was actually an investment banker in, in New York at the time as well. He had gone to UCLA. And back in, you know, when I was graduating from high school and college, um, investment banking was the thing, right? So everybody nowadays, or even the last 10 years, has been technology or Google or Facebook. Hmm. But back in the late 90s, it was like, if you can be an investment banker, that was the job to be. And so I, uh, I studied hard and I had a, a summer internship at, at a bank called UBS, Union Bank of Switzerland. And then when I graduated, I wanted to do more complex finance, restructuring balance sheets and doing M&A mergers and acquisitions. So I joined a, a company called DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin & Generate. It was a very, very, very famous investment bank in the late 90s that did a lot of complex transactions. So that's where I went after college. So what is it about finance that really got you hooked or that you fell in love with or enjoy? You know, I, I would be like, it's money. So, so I, would, <laughs> I love the um, honesty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, to be honest with you, it was the generation, the Wall Street generation. And you watch the movie with Michael Douglas and like that, that era, you know, I was really focused on, I wanted to get a high paying job out of college. 
Yeah. Um, now, to be honest with you, I, I really don't do love numbers and I love finance and math and understanding the intricacies of like how to operate a business, how the financials pour out into a balance sheet and the cash flow statement, and how you move certain levers in a business, um, focus the company on the right, you know, KPIs and right metrics can really impact the PL and then using your balance sheet properly, being capital efficient. So all those things were super interesting to me. It was just a really roundabout way to get into finally operating businesses that I took as I as I as I went from investment banking to venture capital at Qualcomm. I actually helped start the Qualcomm's venture capital group back in 2000 to back to private equity to do larger scale transactions. And then eventually I I I wanted to to operate a business versus constantly just telling people at the board level, you know, what to do. I wanted yeah. to actually do it. So well, good for you. That's uh, you know, you sounds like you just wanted to get into the trenches. And so, what made it? What made you kind of motivated to do that? What made you kind of? Was there a moment or a company or a person that you met that kind of made you say, "Hey, I, I actually think I want to be on the operation side." Um, yeah. So um, it's a, it's an interesting story. So I had I had actually gone out to India um, for a year in 2007. My brother uh, at the time had started an animation studio out there. Um, that grew up, ended up growing up very big. Um, and um, I was like, you know what, let's go on a journey. I was young, I was single. So I joined a private equity firm out in India um, in 2007. Um, and then, you know, and, I, and I, I say this to a lot of people, you know, I'm maybe Indian, but it doesn't mean I love living in India. So I think after a year or so, I decided that I wanted to be back in California. And, and I love California. That's where I was born and raised. And no matter all the narrative going on right now about people leaving California, it's still the most beautiful state in the world. Like I just, I just love it out here. So I, I moved back to the U S but I moved back to the U S in April or May of 2008. So oh, that's timing. when, yeah. So that's <laughs> when I had, I was going to be working for a, a venture capital firm coming back. But then as I was actually in the air, um, you could see the stock market just drop. I think I, I think I took a week cause I went to Dubai on the way back um, and they rescinded all their offers. Wow. And so um, I landed in the U.S. back in California and didn't have a job. And the economy was going under. Yeah. And so uh, you probably remember that time period as well. And so, um, and so I ended up um, consulting. Just I had a lot of friends and colleagues that were now either running public companies or doing different things. And, and I ended up helping them from a financial, like investment banking standpoint. So helping them think through strategies and uh, mergers and acquisitions. And I, and I partnered with uh, my old, old uh, partner from private equity, uh, a guy by the name of Mike Guthrie, who's one of my, he's, he's like a big brother to me um, still to this day. Um, and we did a lot of consulting gigs. And then finally in 2011, he interviewed for about eight months, for the CFO job at a company called TrueCar down in Los Angeles. It's an internet automotive company. Mm -hmm. um, he was about, he was, he, he was under the pressure that he was going to come in and take it public. And then I think the first week he started in January of 2012, still remember he made a, he gave me a call and he said, Hey, Neeraj, um, this company's not ready to go public at all. Um, I need you to come down and at least for a little couple of months, help me, you know, understand what's happening with the balance sheet and, do a lot of work. And I came down for a consulting gig. My, my wife was pregnant. My wife at the time was pregnant uh, with our second kid. Was so that came... arranged? I have to ask, obviously. No, 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 not arranged. Like... Not, arranged. <laughs> not arranged at all. 
<laughs> but I'm divorced now, so maybe I should have been arranged. <laughs> uh, 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 but um, I came down in um, a, for what was supposed to be a month consulting gig, and it ended up being seven and a half years. And so when I came down, it was really about analyzing, and I'd never done consumer internet, so I'd never really gone into the metrics with an internet company. Um, so I really got to dig in and, and understand consumer internet at a very deep level. So coming in from unique visitors to conversion rates to, to A-B testing to data platforms, and I loved it. It was like it was like math, but for the internet. It was like finance for the internet. Yeah. And so um, I ended up deciding to run finance and ops and operations for, for TrueCar, and I quickly recruited a bunch of people from banking and from hedge funds to come in, you know, a lot of people were starting the, 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 to be enamored with operational stuff. And we built what's called the BizOps team. And the BizOps team, a business operations team was focused on really analyzing different parts of the business and how those connected to the P&L, right? So how those connected to your income statement and then really driving those results and those metrics into the operating uh, group leads. So being a real partner, but a champion of the KPIs. And we were the, the, we were called the single source of truth, right? Because we were the only people that weren't trying to, um, you know, pretty up our numbers, right? Like yeah. if you, you end up um, pushing data to the edge and let the people at the edges and the operating groups own their data, they tend to massage it in their favor. Mm -hmm. And so when you own it from a central basis, and you have a collaborative relationship, then you, you've got to be careful because you don't want it to be friction when they trust you like, hey, this KPI is going here and here's how it's impacting our revenue or here's how it's impacting our consumer experience. Um, so we built that group up and, and it ended up really flipping TrueCar overnight. I mean, we went from 70, 60 million of revenue to you know losing 40 million of EBITDA to the next year doing 110 million of revenue and 10 million profits. And so um, then you started to like realize to yourself, oh, I get it. Like now the things I used to say at the board meetings as a private equity investor or a venture investor, when you can actually put them in practice and build it, you're, it ends up with positive results and you get to own those results. And so, you know, we ended up doing that for another year. I transitioned up into much broader roles. I was the chief revenue officer um, right before the IPO. So we went public in 2014 with Goldman Sachs. Um, and that was the beginning of, you know, a career in, in operations and, and to where I am today. And going through an IPO, what was that like? You know, I'd done it a bunch of times from the investment banking side, so I'd right. help companies go public. But I think from the operational side, it's a lot of work, right? So there's a lot of prep work ha having to get done, you know, from a financial perspective. I had branched out. So since my partner, Mike and I, um, he was running finance, right? So he was, he got a chief accounting officer in. He was getting the financials ready, getting audited financials, making sure our KPIs and our you know projection models were good to go public, working with the investment bank. I one day woke up and um, started to just look at marketing. And I was like, wow, this kind of looks like a math problem um, when you think about consumer marketing, right? So everybody thinks about marketing from a brand perspective. Like, what yes. does my brand look creative, like? Creative, yeah. Creative and, and, and all those things. But in, in the consumer internet world, it's left brain, right brain, right? So you want to make sure you've got a, a real finger on the pulse of brand and the value of brand. Um, but you also really got to understand math, right? So conversion rates, you know, CPA, CPC, CPMs, all those acronyms that you all hear about on the marketing side. 
And we didn't have anybody owning that at, at TrueCar. And so I decided one day to go try to solve TV analytics and TV attribution and, and all these different things. And we ended up doing it. And, and, and so I went back to my CEO at the time and, and, and Mike as well and said, listen, I, I want to run this as well. Like, this is fun. We've got a, 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 a potential to build out our TV mechanisms and our radio mechanisms and then integrate that with Google and Facebook and Instagram and, and, and affiliates and partnerships and, and really build a, a media mix model or a marketing mix model that, that works together and integrates but really drives value. And so I ended up becoming the CMO of the company as well. And so that was really fun because I got to work with really incredible brand people. And mm -hmm. I value brand a lot. Like I understand the concepts in and around making sure that your brand has a heart and a personality and, and talks to consumers in the right way and, and takes care of its consumers. And so when you can combine that, which we had an incredible team that was doing that piece with real hardcore data and analytics and integrated marketing where you're using data science and different modeling techniques to, to drive profitability and efficiency, you know, you can really take off. And, and that's why TrueCar ended up, you know, at one point being the hottest and, 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 and most recognized brand in the category if you look back to 14, 15, and 16. We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Having a great Shopify developer is so important for brands selling online, but finding and hiring a trusted and talented developer is really hard to do, especially for ongoing projects. That's why over 30,000 brands and founders have trusted StoreTasker, including Type A Brands and Hawk Media, who have been guests on the show. StoreTasker has interviewed over 5,000 Shopify developers, hand-selected the top 5%, and streamlined the hiring experience from end-to-end -end so you don't have to. Whether you're a founder that's just getting started or a brand doing over $30 million in revenue, StoreTasker has a developer for you. Get introduced to your next Shopify developer for free and get 10% off your first project at storetasker.com slash stairway to CEO. That's storetasker.com slash stairway to CEO. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one -one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. 
Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. That's such an interesting career path you've had from going deep into finance to CRO to CMO, right? That's not normally a path to CMO, I'd say. <laughs> um, but in terms of that, what we're talking about marketing, I think the hardest thing for a lot of marketers is really trying to quantify and measure brand, right? Or just a lot of the different types of marketing efforts. What are some things that you learned there that you can and can't quantify or things that you, you did and thought you couldn't or... You you know, what kind of um, advice do you have? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. So the typical CMO or marketing or agency will always talk about aided and unaided awareness, right? So where is your brand going and what's the aided awareness and the unaided awareness, which, you know, is, is a fine barometer. Um, you know, we tend to do a lot of stuff um, to tease out data. And in both um, automotive and actually what I'm learning here at Byte today as well is seasonality um, gets you to understand like, what are your peaks and troughs? Like what is your high point and low points as you're building and scaling a brand? Um, and as long, and one of the things that I learned very early on is, as you're growing and you're building, you can pulse advertising, right? You can pulse marketing in a way that you realize that people aren't buying, you know, people don't buy cars in certain months and actually people don't buy, you know, healthcare products or med tech products in certain weeks or days. And so as you pulse that down, you try to understand if your troughs, if your, if your low points of unique visitors or whatever your kind of lead is or whatever your, your sale data is, as long as those troughs are growing, meaning you know as you see them come down, they're increasing, you can correlate that to brand, right? So you can see like from a direct traffic perspective or organic traffic perspective, or whatever it may be, whatever your component is that's helping people come to your site or recognize your brand is growing. Because when you stop marketing, the, the bottom point is constantly getting bigger. And so it's a, it's a unique thing. I actually look at it visually. I, I, I'll take a Tableau dashboard and I'll play around with Tableau and, and grab our you know, unique visitor data from Google um, and, and I'll plug it in and, and I'll visualize it with my product team. But um, once we start seeing those things, I get confident that as we spend more money on the on traffic on the front end and start building the brand that we've got a little bit of leeway to continue to to, to maybe have some less efficient in-month marketing channels meaning if you did a, a TV campaign or a radio campaign that month that month that you launch it in won't do as well if you compare it to like a DR campaign a direct response campaign on Facebook or Google but in the long run you'll see that your baseline or that trough will be growing because people will remember your TV commercial. They don't remember that Instagram ad that you clicked and you bought or you didn't, right? So you can tell your narrative and your story a little bit longer. Interesting. So, you know, as CRO, then CMO, you know, these are amazing leadership roles. What mistakes did you make or what challenges have you experienced on the job that you had to overcome? You know, quite a few, right? So I think one of the things... Um, and this is this is this is and this will go both personal and professional because I think you you're learning lessons on both sides as you have kids, you're being a yes. father and as you're a husband and yep. you're going through like we had multiple CEO changes and you know CFO changes and 
And one of the things that I have learned is, you know, I came from the investment banking world and, you know, some of us have sharp elbows, right? So you're coming up the ranks of private equity and you're dealing with alphas like across the board, right? Everybody is a, is an alpha. Everybody, you know, was straight A student or whatever it may be coming from the Harvards and the Yales and, and you get kind of used to that. And that mentality is, um, is very hard, right? I mean, that's a, that's a hard place to be. And so when you move into operations um, or you move into a company, um, you tend to have a broader exposure of people, right? Like I, I've got creative people that, you know, they don't, they don't react well to, you know, aggressive management, right? They have yeah. a very different approach. Um, while I still have a biz ops team that does, right? So these guys are ex-bankers and head hedge funds, and they, they actually accelerate their performance with that type of mentality. So one of the things that I, I, I probably, you know, learned during the the experience at TrueCar was I needed to be I needed to be very 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 mindful of that um, and balance that out um, from a from a management perspective right if as I'm working with different people recognize you know introvert extrovert what type of what type of human being are they and where that really struck um, a chord with me is you know we used to do these um, management team offsites where we bring in you know a, a, a coach. And you would do these personality tests and you get these spider webs and here's your personality and here's what you are. And, yeah. you know, you use this, you've probably done these as well. Right. Oh, so yeah, so many. Uh, there's Myers Briggs and there's all these different tests. Right. And so, yeah. and I had never done this before. And to be honest with you prior to this, and then, you know, things I went through with my divorce, I, I, I was like, I am who I am. Right. <laughs> you can't put me in a box. I'm not taking yeah, this exactly. test. Exactly. I'm great. I'm doing great. Right. So, yeah. um, what was funny was, is that, you know, in parallel to that, I, you know, I had my own personal therapist, right? I was you know, dealing with personal issues at home. And so during this time process, when you were top of the class and then investment banker and had all these good jobs, nobody really tells you kind of, you're kind of an asshole, right? Like, like, <laughs> like right. You, and then you, you, you realize when you, when you go to, you know, some of these coachings and therapists and stuff like that, um, everything kind of correlates together. You're like, Oh my God, everybody's pointing to some of these issues around sharp elbows. Mm. And then what topped it off is my, my, my first son, Devin, whose birthday is it's his birthday today. Oh, um, happy birthday. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, he's a super creative and a super emotional, like very, like he does not react well to, you know, aggressive parenting. And when I mean aggressive parenting, I mean, just hard parenting, like how my generation grew up where, you Mm -hmm. know, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I recognize that he does really well when you let him learn on his own and you have, you have supportive guidance, right? You Mm -hmm. give him confidence. And then as you get to more confidence, he actually does better and better and better. It's not, you know, the coach who says, you know, you stink. And, and then you're like, I don't want to stink. I don't want to do better. He's not that. <laughs> yeah. and, and, um, and that's what people at work are. I mean, people grow up, people learn and grow and, and really great talent can go and get where they get from any different avenue, right? Any different angle. And I learned that at True Car during that time period, because it, it was very important for me to go through that process. Because now what I do is, is as I'm recruiting people in, I do really let them let them run. And when they need help or they need guidance or something goes off off track, like we work together. And a great example is that is I went into a meeting the other day um, where, you know, we definitely made some mistakes on some certain things. Like we definitely pulled the wrong lever on this or the wrong lever on that. And 
I would have usually before maybe six, seven years ago, I would have gone in the meeting and I would have put a couple graphs together and I would have put these little stick stick figure people on it and had the question mark guy and been like, you know, why is this happening? Like really aggressive. And and some people would be like, yeah, we get it. But some people would like literally shrivel up mm-hmm. and not want to deal with that kind of stress. Mm-hmm. And so this meeting I went to, the, it was just the, actually just the other day, I said, guys, listen, I want you to know, like, yeah, I'm definitely not happy by what happened, but that's not going to solve the problem. Let's work together and solve the problem. And right. everybody was like, perfect, let's do it. And so we solved the problem really quickly. And that is just growth and trust. And then, you know, getting great people around you because you can't, you're not going to build a great business unless you recruit great people and let them, let them be. Um, mm-hmm. My job is to recruit great people. Um, and when they need my help, I give them my help. So I didn't, I, I would try to do a lot more five, six years ago on my own. And now I kind of delegate and, 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 and if people need my help, I'm, I'm, I love to get my, you know, roll up my sleeves and get into the numbers. But that's one of the, you know, going back to your original question here is that's one of the things I definitely learned um, through this process. It's really, really interesting. I love that you say no one tells you you're an asshole, you know, when you're going through, you know, top of your class, all these things. Um, It's not until you're kind of in these specific um, roles, I guess, in leadership where you really have to kind of shift um, how you manage people because everybody really learning learns and grows in a different way. Um, that's what else along those lines, you know, I think a lot of young managers, you know, founders, especially that are CEOs, um, maybe struggle with this a lot, right? Maybe they've never managed anyone in their life and here they are building a company and trying to scale it. And they're kind of struggling with how do I, you know, kind of own the room because I'm the boss, cause this is my company, but also be you know, gentle and encouraging, but, but also, you know, firm, you know, I think it's kind of tough and it probably all comes down to communication. I mean, what advice do you have for the young managers out there? Yeah, so that's a, it's a great question. It's something you, you learn during the process. I think one thing um, it's hard for a lot of people to let go of is ego. Yeah. Right. So ego, um, ego is the enemy, right? That's a great book, but ego is truly the enemy of, of, of great cultures. Um, you know, Netflix has that, that culture document about, you know, they don't hire brilliant jerks. And so you've got to be, you know, by the way, just so you know, like I probably would have considered myself one of those 15 years ago mm-hmm. right? and, 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 and Netflix wouldn't have hired me. Um, and then I wouldn't have had that meteoric, meteoric rise of Netflix stock. Right. So one thing that I've noticed is, is that CEOs and entrepreneurs and executives or whatever it is, you know, should constantly be, you know, showing their employees that they're in it, like they're, they're deeply in it, like, like go through your numbers, you know, somebody puts a document together, read through it, a lot of a lot of people just skim by it, and then jump into the meetings, like, show the people that you're really caring about what they're doing. Um, I tend to respond very quickly to everybody. I, I don't think an email will sit in my inbox or a text will sit in my phone for longer than five minutes um, for me to respond. Um, and if it's even, even if it's supposed to be a long response, I'll just let them know that I'm, I'm listening to them and I'm hearing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're in a room and you're there, like they're looking up to you as a leader, but they're also wanting you to like help them lead, right? Yeah, so yeah. so be super supportive. Um, but the biggest thing to do is hire the best talent. Um, and it's a, it's a great story that I have about this. Um, back at, at, at TrueCar, it, um, I'm one of those people 
who believes that you hire, you know, when you're drafting for a, a sport, football or baseball, whatever it is, they always say, who's the best like person next? Not like who's the best quarterback or the, what's the best athlete on the board, right? I do the same thing at work. Um, I hire the most talented person I can get in front of or meet, even if their specialty isn't that. Now, not for a lawyer or something like that. I'm not going to hire somebody who's not a lawyer. But um, the great example is, is that there was a, um, an incredible, incredible woman um, that I was trying to recruit at True Car, and she had no automotive experience, zero automotive experience. Um, but she was just an all-star. She'd come from investment banking. Um, and I was very, you know, very sure that within three to four months of digging into the automotive industry and the specialized role that was at TrueCar, she would run circles around everybody. And um, I, I, there was a lot, and I wasn't, you know, the CMO at the time. I was, you know, head of, you know, ops or head of CRO or something like that. A lot of pushback, a lot of pushback. And the pushback was very simply, she doesn't have um, the background. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I realized that there are a lot of people out there, and you should be cognizant of this, that um, need to open their minds a little bit because everybody yeah. needs a chance to jump out of something that they might not want to do anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and this woman didn't want to do investment banking anymore. She was super, super smart. She wanted to get into operations, and we, we brought her in. And now she's, I think, one of the top five executives still at the company. Amazing. So, so those are the things, like if I, if I give advice, um, don't push away. If, if you're looking for a specialized position, but you've got an incredible talent, talk and be transparent with that talent. Talk about the job, talk about the expectations, because they will put in 150% effort mm -hmm. versus the person who already thinks they know the, that, that thing really well. And within two, three, four months, you'll have a rock star at that position. What was it, do you think, that she did differently maybe in the interview process with you that helped her stand out, that made you say that, made you believe that about her, that while she's so talented, she doesn't have this experience, but it's fine, I can overlook it because of these qualities. What was what was done? What stuck out, you know, that really made you kind of overlook the You know, you could just tell it was work, work ethic and curiosity. So curiosity is something that I really, really, really focus on um, because you need to, there, there's, there's these concepts of people that can record the past and there's the concepts of uh, people who can uh, see the future. And uh, the people who see the future, you know, that's curiosity. Like I want to uncover what may happen. And she so showed a tremendous amount of concepts in and around that. Um, you could tell she was a born leader, like she was going to be able to lead people um, and that she was going to work hard. Like, like her work ethic was off the charts. Um, and I just actually did the same thing right now. I brought in a woman named Megan as our GC at, at Byte. And, you know, she's incredible. Um, took me a while to recruit her. If she's listening to this, she'll, she'll, she'll be smiling. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, she now, the first week, she first week was um, the last week. And on Friday, or last Wednesday, and on Friday night, she's sending 1 a.m. emails about, you know, our UK expansion or whatever it is. And you just know right away I've got an all-star on my hands. Mm. And so that, it, like, the, one of the most important jobs for a CEO after they've reached a certain stage is recruiting, if not the most important. Right.
So it sounds like these candidates are going above and beyond what's asked in the interview process. And that's what really helps them stick out. Because I'm trying to think from the perspective of the listeners who are trying to change, you know, their trajectory or, and get into something new, but they don't have that industry background. You know, the advice that you're sharing for them in these interviews is basically like find different ways to stick out, to show your work ethic and curiosity. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share? No, it's, it really is um, just get great talent. Like, I, it just, it's so important. And, and, and for these people that are, that are looking to jump out, like, show some tenacity. Like, like and be, be, be transparent. Hey, listen, like, yeah, I don't have any experience in the automotive space, but here are kind of three or four things that show you, can show you how quickly I can kind of get absorbed into this. I mean, I, I moved from investment banking to, you know, Qualcomm's venture capital group. And if anybody knows Qualcomm, it's a really complex, you know, mobile um, semiconductor and, and mobile technologies company based in San Diego. And I, I before I had about a month uh, um, between jobs as I left investment banking, I spent the entire month learning, learning about CDMA technology, code division multiplexing. It's the the architecture that CDMA, that Qualcomm's built upon. Because when I went in there, I wanted to be able to talk to engineers. And I had no experience in this space. But, you know, within my first week, I still remember my, my boss at the time came up to me and said, you sure you don't have an engineering background? Um, <laughs> because I just spent, you know, the, you know three, four weeks. You now, I, I actually bought CDMA for dummies. Um, and I bought one of those books to start out. And then you know, that gives you a foundation. And then you can start learning because... You know, your mind is always expanding and always thirsting for more knowledge as long as you're willing to give it the opportunity. So find those people because they can be really talented. They can be stuck at, you know, XYZ or ABC. And, and, and when you find them, you know, make sure you can kind of figure out that they're going to go that way and then, and then bring them in. They, yeah. They're going to they're gonna blow you away. That's awesome. That's really helpful. Um, so how did the opportunity arise to become CEO of Byte? Great. You know, another great story. So I was in the process of transitioning out of TrueCar mm -hmm. and I wanted to do something different. And I'd been there for almost, almost eight years. And the founder of Byte, uh, Scott Cohen, you know, is now a brother, brother of mine. Um, uh, he was in my office and he was actually in to understand how we were able to build our brand and our acquisition channels and our partner and affiliate, all the stuff we did to elevate TrueCar. Um, in the automotive space. And I think what he tells me is um, midway through the conversation, he was like, that's that's our guy. Like, that's our guy. And so what turned into, was supposed to be just a marketing kind of jam session, ended up being, you know, a somewhat recruiting process from, from Scott. <laughs> and um, and I remember, we, we probably didn't talk for another three, four months after that. Our kids actually go to the same school as well. So we were connected there. But um, as I was looking to transition out of TrueCar and, and Scott was looking to, um, to bring in somebody to be president and CEO, um, I reached out to him again. He's like, oh my God, there's great timing. Um, we are not in past. So the, both the founders at Byte are early stage guys. And what's great about them is that um, from a founder CEO startup perspective, they've done it three or four times each. And so they become very uh, knowledgeable about what legs of the race they're really good at and what legs they want to find somebody to go run the next leg of the race for the, for the company. And so I still remember the day I had come into their offices and it was a, a game-changing moment for my life. Um, I was in the office 
Scott had stepped out for a second and I had already done my diligence on the category, right? So I'd done my investment banking diligence, like how big is the TAM and how big yeah. can the market be and all the things. So and I was excited about that already. Um, and then I could hear a woman crying in our bite advisory group. And so right away, you know, alarm bells, like, right. uh -oh, what's, the oh, culture yeah. like? what's the culture like here, right? And so <laughs> I walked over to her, um, her name's Lily. She's probably listening to this as well. If she is, Lily, great work. She's still at the company. Um, but I tapped her on the shoulder and then I could hear a woman on the other end of the phone crying. And I was like, okay, th this is an issue. And so Lily said, no, 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 Neeraj, don't worry about this. This is just another one of these incredible customer experience journeys. Um, yeah, this was a mother um, who deals with the issue that so many people across the U.S. deal with in the concept of teeth straightening or aligners or orthodontics. She lived in a county that didn't have an orthodontist, and her daughter had tried to commit suicide twice. Oh, my god! Her daughter had tried to commit suicide twice because she was bullied about the way her teeth and her mouth looked. Oh. And the mother, so only 40% of U.S. counties have an orthodontist. She happened to live in one that didn't. And she couldn't afford traditional braces, brackets, you know, all the things that you know, we take for granted growing up, um, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 um, for her daughter. And yeah. the mother had finally discovered bite. And the daughter was now on month four of month five of her treatment and her teeth were straightening. And she was now no longer being bullied and she was regaining her confidence. And the mother was just overwhelmed with joy with Lily. And, mm -hmm. and she said something that flipped my switch about what I wanted to do with my life. She said, I finally have my daughter back. And that's one of those really surreal moments that you have. You'll have a couple of these in your career where you're like, everything comes together in a unique way where you're like, I understand the market size, it's massive, it's huge. But man, I didn't understand how big of a difference this concept and this experience and this access and this affordability of, of getting your teeth straightened and regaining your smile really is. And I think I told Scott that day, I was like, listen, we got to make this work. Like, I, I, I'm here, I, I'm ready to do this. And I want to, I want to grow this business. And I want to grow this brand hmm. to the most accessible and most affordable, you know, oral care brand in the world. Um, and that's my journey to, to, to bite. And I've been here ever since. And I think that was mid 19. Um, and it's been incredible. And so that's, that's how I got to bite and be the CEO over here at bite. And I'm sure you might be a little relieved, I guess, that that wasn't a cultural issue. <laughs> no, completely. Actually, it was a, it was a, it was a positive to the culture. Yes, exactly. Right? It, was, it was a mission. It was our mission. And a great story behind that is, uh, that was the, that story that I just told you, um, before we went into quarantine, you know, Carrie Washington, the actress, is, you know, it was a creative advisor to us. The last meeting before we went into quarantine back in February, March timeframe was with Carrie. Um, she heard my story, by the way, one of the most brilliant, smartest brand and conceptual women I've ever met in my life. Um, she's got this, you know, KW Inc. She's really trying to, you know, invest in accessible affordabilities to communities that are near and dear to her. She heard my story and she said, you know, Neeraj, if you're afraid to open your mouth, you're never going to find your voice. And we all kind of looked around at each other. And we're like, oh, my God, that's exactly what we stand for from a brand perspective. And I, I actually, as we went through the M&A process, we went through by you. That was the first slide on every single one of my decks um, because people don't fully understand how important it is to have confident smile, opening your mouth, the teeth. You, you see this every day on Zoom calls now or on the selfie world and Instagram and Facebook and, and we're changing people's lives. And so that has been 
the most powerful thing that I've gone through over the last year to understand how important what we're doing is for the world. That's amazing. That's always, um, you know, that helps you uh, get up every morning, I'm sure, to yeah. get to work. It's, it, you know what? Sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take you on that wake up every morning. So every morning, um, instead of coffee, I go into my Slack channel at 5 a.m. I'm a pretty early riser, and I read customer feedback channel. Mm. And every day it makes me smile. Like we have like people literally talking about the representative that has been helping them at Byte and the fact that they've been always dreaming about straight teeth, they can never afford it. And now they've got it and it's changed their lives. They're so confident. You know, so many people, and I know we can't see me, we're, 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 we're not going to be doing this on Zoom, but so many people talk like this, yeah. you know, with their mouth closed or they smile, they don't smile they, with their teeth. And now you just people grinning ear to ear, like showing their smiles and they're so happy. And you just wake up, you're like, oh my God, we did that. Like we changed yeah. that, that person's trajectory. And, you know, just with the, even the, the, the woman's story I told you before, we don't know, but we potentially prevented a suicide. Like, you know, you, right. don't know these, you don't know these things. Everybody's going through so much stuff in their own lives. Mm -hmm. that if we can even help a little bit in, you know, mental health and all these things by giving you confidence with these things, you know, it's a home run for us. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you were, you know, talking to Scott and, you know, when we were talking about this before, kind of the different skill sets and qualities between, you know, the early stage founder CEO and the CEO who can take the business, you know, from a hundred million to a billion dollars. What does that look like? You know, if we were to break that down. Yeah, so it's great. So, uh, so Scott and Blake, so Blake is the other founder as well. Um, we spent a lot of time architecting what that looked like, right? So when you think about a startup, you, you kind of live in gray areas left and right, right? You try mm -hmm. to make, you know, as much as you can do with as little capital as possible. And one of the things that's amazing about Byte is zero outside capital went into this company. So, wow. so it was not, no, I mean, we got notices from people all the time from venture capitalists wanting to invest in the company. But, you know, Scott and Blake are extremely focused on capital efficiency. And so from a startup stage, if you can get over that hump and really create the brand and really create some momentum um, without raising outside capital, that skill set is, is, is truly rare um, because you end up building a culture of accountability and building a culture of realizing that every dollar you spend is a dollar that you might not have from an equity perspective. It's a, you know, there's this concept of a dollar spent is a dollar of dilution if you're, you're raising from other people's money. So the mindset there is, is different. So that helps you get to a certain stage, but then you reach kind of a hyper growth stage. Or if you get the, if you get the rare opportunity to reach a hyper growth stage, um, you've got to invest in the business, right? You've got to invest in certain concepts in the business that you know the risk threshold for potentially losing a little bit of money, but then coming out of the other end with a much bigger, bigger enterprise is a different skill set, right? So as you think about marketing and foundational building on global expansion, as we're going out into the UK, we're in Australia, we're going to go into Canada, um, you, want, you want the ability to manage both the balance sheet and the growth in a way that doesn't sacrifice one for the other. Um, and so that concept is, is just different. And some CEOs and some founders can do it, um, but some founders and CEOs, you know, should take the time to realize that that's where their passion lies. Mm -hmm. Because Scott and Blake will tell you over and over again, they like to tinker in their garage. They like to build companies from the ground up. And which is, which is awesome for me because of the trust 
they put in me, you know, very quickly after coming in and joining and running the company was, mm-hmm. was, you just don't, it's very rare. I mean, they they were, they own, you know, a significant, you know, majority of the company, right? There's no outside capital here mm-hmm. and they just handed it off. And yeah. so um, that's truly rare, but I think the, the CEOs and operators that can find those colleagues and people that can, you know, elevate the next stage of this business. Cause I mean, we grew from, you know, nine, $10 million in revenue to nearly 150 year over year. And that concept takes investment and takes a little bit of a different mindset because I think we're going to try to get to a billion dollars of revenue in the next two or three years. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where we're at. It's really interesting because, you know, as founders, they spend so much time building the company from scratch, doing everything, you know, there's a, it's very hard to let go and, you know, put your egos aside. It sounds like they have a lot of experience in doing that and being comfortable, but for a lot of the entrepreneurs probably tuning in and listening, they're like, what? I I should think about doing what? Handing this over? I don't know about that. Yeah, no, listen, these, these guys are rare. They're a rare breed. Scott and Blake are, are truly rare, but I think of a lot more c- operators and CEOs can get to that that space. Mm-hmm. It could be better. Listen, some of them out there are great startup to operators to to building the right team. It, it does mean you should you po- probably find the right president or COO that can help you manage that because maybe you want to think about product innovation or mm. future gen stuff. So I think it's just it, it's just extremely rare. I got lucky to do it, but I, but I think. Most folks should 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 go through that process and think it through. Like for example, I mean, we ended up as as, as you can see, you know, we, we were bought for a billion dollars just a couple months ago, yeah. and that was you know for the last year and a half, the the, the founders really were out of the business, yeah. Um, yeah. And that exit came from their their foresight and their knowledge base to still I mean still helping out a lot of stuff, but really letting this team kind of run and, and build, bring that exit. And now the next stage of the company is even more exciting because we're still, I mean, we're still only 18, 24 months old. Yeah. And it's so, insane. yeah. So we're, we're, we're super excited about the future. Like, I mean, everybody in the world should have the opportunity to get their teeth straightened and get their smile if they, if they want it. Yeah. And we, that's, we, that's what we think about every single day. We want to make this concept, more accessible and more affordable to my mom's village in India. Like yeah. my, my goal would be to sell a bike aligner to a cousin of mine in India. Like that would be, <laughs> that would be just, you know, I, I know we've arrived. Right. If we made a difference like that. And that's why a lot of the team that was there that has been here in bite, what I call bite 1.0 transitioning to bite 2.0, they're all still here. A lot of them. And they're, you know what, they're really excited about learning how to move their skill set from bite 1.0 to bite 2.0. And some folks won't. Some folks realize, you know what? I really like that bite 1.0 stage. And it's about being cognizant and very aware that that's what you like. And then be honest about it because you could become an anchor um, for a bite 2.0. So we spend a tremendous amount of time being transparent about the next stage of this process. And getting acquired is a huge deal. <laughs> so when you first took the role, was that kind of, um, was that already kind of discussed? Like this is the goal and, and we need your help to kind of get there. Um, or how did that happen? And what was it like to go through the acquisition? Yeah, no, that was it. I mean, Scott and Blake brought me in and they said, you know, near the, the legs of the race that we want to run, we've run. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we want to bring you in and, and we want to find a majority owner of the company with you to go build the next stage of this business. And so nice. the majority of 2020 from my standpoint was spent, it was crazy. Like, you know, we went into quarantine and I was doing Zoom investor calls with private equity investors and strategic investors and and also making sure that, you know, we, we had this quarantine. So teledentistry and, and, and telemedicine type applications like ours really took off, right? I mean, we, we're we not blinded by the fact that, you know, we had a tailwind in COVID when it came to the concept of our product. But what that's built is, you know, a lot of mindshare now and awareness that I could get this done. Um, so yeah, the job for me was to really, you know, act as a CEO and president and, and continue to, to operate the business, but really spend the lion's share of my time getting the right partner for the next stage of the business. And we definitely found that with Dense by Serona. You know, Don Casey, the CEO over there and I, we've become like best buds. And his mission, their mission is on the, the dentist side, right? Their mission is to make, you know, the world easier and, and, and oral care more aware, uh, available to dentists. They sell dental equipment and ours is on the consumer side. Mm-hmm. And so when you can bridge those together um, and with their, with their balance sheet and their size and their scale, they're a public company, um, you can really potentially change the world at a very, very, very different pace. Right. And that's where we are today. That's very cool. Um, and finding the right partner is everything. Um, and it sounds like you found this partner yourself through maybe your network or through, you know, some of the investors that you were talking to. I'm not sure how, but I mean, how did the transition go? Cause I think, you know, depending on the acquisition, there's, there's always this like transition, especially with the team and the morale. How did you manage that? So we're still managing, right? It's, it's only, uh, it's only February and it was the transaction closed on December 31st. But one thing that Don and I and the dense by Serona team talked about is, you know, we're a we're a young, you know, fast growing company based in Santa Monica and in, in Utah, um, with a massive presence in Costa Rica as well, because a lot of teeth movement treatment planning software folks are in Costa Rica. Um, but uh, they were very much like, you know, listen, we're hands off. You guys are growing so rapidly. Where where we need to button up, like let's button up. When you think about as a startup, you you operate in some gray areas. So you know, let's go button those up that need to be legal. Rec- regulatory, you know, compliance, FDA, all the stuff that we're spending a lot of time and focus on. Um, but you do you. Like, we don't understand consumer internet. So keep building your business and where we can help you out. If you think about manufacturing and supply chain and logistics um, and things like that, like, let's have work streams around that. Um, but your day-to-day won't change. And so Don was on, you know, a Zoom with our entire team and said, first off, I want to let you all know, nothing's changed. So continue to do what you do because you do it a lot better than anybody else in the world. Nice. And then um, we've got, you know, four or five work streams that are integrated. Um, so you can think about this as international development and professional development, a bunch of stuff, but they don't really touch the broader company. They're just a few executives working on plans. So, you know, integration, like I said, it's still early. Um, and, you know, I think, M&As of, of this size and stature take about six to 12 months to figure out like where you really are. But so far, it's been phenomenal. It's been the perfect partner for Byte. Nice. And, you know, Byte has had such insane growth, exponential growth over the past few years. I mean, not, well, not even that long. I mean, you guys haven't been around even that long, but how, how can you kind of point, what levers can you point to that are, that can maybe explain that growth or how can that growth be achieved for the startups that are tuning in? 
It's a great, you know what? It's a, it's a, that's a great, great question, Lee. Um, so one of the things that Scott and Blake um, focused on early on, which is spot on, is customer experience. So, so your core tenant needs to be what I call the bottom of the funnel, um, which is where when your consumer is ready to convert to your product, create the best experience for them. Because what happens is they become your biggest advocates. Mm -hmm. And if you do that at an early stage, so the entire business was built with that foundation. So if you thought about like the meticulous nature of our impression kits that are sent to consumers, the consumers, the way they take their impression kits, the instructions, getting them to send back their impression kits so we can kind of get the digital scan and then get them into treatment planning and, 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 and get them their aligners. The box is like an Apple-esque type experience. People are unboxing on Instagram or TikTok now almost every, you know, every hour, every minute. You see people unboxing because it's this excitement period, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you're about to go on this journey that you might have been waiting 20 years for. Yeah. Um, and so we've been able to, the founders and the founding team, and this is not my credit at all, right? They, they built that. So for your, for your early stage entrepreneurs, center around your consumers, center around their problem, solve that. And as you see conversions rise, you know, then you can start sprinkling some more marketing juice, right? Because the ROI on that becomes better and better and better. And one of the things is we've been almost profitable since day one. So, so those are the things when you, when you do those things, right? Your ROI on your capital, if you're an investor, you know, we started very soft, like small. I, I, I was always puzzled, and some people have done it really well, but about, you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the front end of building out your business uh, on the traffic side and not showing profitability, right? You, you always say it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You can actually do it the other way as well. It might take a little bit longer um, because you're building from the bottom up rather than the top down, but you'll go there the right way because... If you start to grow very fast, your experience is always there to save you. Right. Um, and so if you go to any of the review sites, Lee, if you go to like anything around aligners, like we're at the top and there's like no, there's, there's a big gap in between those um, when it comes to reviews and, and who we are from an experience. And that's, that, that all goes down to the founders like that. They were, they were incredible about that. What's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a CEO? Um, the biggest thing I've learned about becoming a CEO, um, it's about, you know, balancing, um, these, these three or four things, which is, you know, recruiting now I haven't, you know, think about my owner or dense by server as my investors, right? So they're now kind of my investors, um, and then customers, right? So I'm going to be taking, so I, I, one of my uh, uncles who's been a CEO multiple times over, he, he told me this concept of a third, a third, a third, a third of the time on people. A third of the time with your investors or like, you know, integrating with me would be Densply and a third of the time with your customers. You know, it's probably, I would say 50% of the time understanding people um, because that's where we are right now from a recruiting standpoint. I've learned to try to balance those out um, and, and make sure I check the box kind of every day on making sure I do those things um, because it's super important. One of the things, I mean, I just sent an email out. We had so much volume and traffic going through our system that we ended up having a little bit of a backlog, which means people weren't getting certain things at the time they had. Sent an email out um, to all of our consumers that were in that stage. And, you know, you could immediately see feedback from them, like in review channels and stuff like that. Oh my God, the CEO emailed me. They really care about me. And so those things, you know, they're important. Um, they're super important. You're, you know, you're getting people to, to trust you with their mouth and their smile. Mm -hmm. And so I think the thing I've learned as CEO is that, and then the last piece is integrating your family. 
right? I think that's super important. I've got two young boys, they're 10 and eight. Like I said, one is turning 11 today. And, you know, yeah, I have, I have truly enjoyed the concept of telecommuting or teleworking because now I can be with them um, and get on a Zoom call and engage with them a little bit more. And that's, but balancing that, I think to make sure to everybody out there, um, and, and I've seen this with early stage entrepreneurs and, um, you know, stay healthy, stay balanced because, you know, you could give 18, 19 hours a day for your work. And then if you ignore what's at home and you ignore that, it'll come back to bite you. So make sure you balance that properly because in the end, that's, to be honest with you, for me at least, that's what's more important than any of this, right? So um, I think as a CEO, I've learned a lot more balance. And for the people out there who are thinking being a CEO would be such an awesome rad job, what's something you think most people don't know about being CEO? There are a lot of things that people don't know about being a CEO. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's multiple concepts. I mean, I was just talking to Don, like I mentioned earlier, like a public company CEO has like a lot of different things that they got to deal with, right? So um, that we'll put, we'll put aside for right now because I'm not a public company CEO. But as a CEO, you're engaged in everything, you know, HR, finance, legal, regulatory, all these things. Um, and you've got to make big, big decisions that can make or break the company. Now, some people, like I find it very exciting. Um, because, you know, I, I, I've done enough in my career to think I can make at least the most educated decisions on my behalf. But I also like, you'll hear from my, my, my teammates, um, I won't do anything unless hundred percent, you know, approval from, from the team. Like, so there's certain decisions they don't need to be involved in, but like, you know, if we're recruiting a CTO, um, if everybody's not on board, like we won't, we won't recruit them. I won't muscle anything by, mm -hmm. um, if we don't have the buy-in. So as a CEO, um, you, you deal with that, right? Like, oh, I really want this or I really want that. Well, no, like, you know, it's not jiving with the team. And so those are things, decisions that you have to make that you have to be hard. And you got to have a real stomach for some legal stuff, right? I mean, there's competitors that are trying to knock you down. There's things that happen from an HR perspective that you have to deal with. They just, it just happens. You get to a thousand people, you know, it's part of the job. So, you know, a lot of early stage entrepreneurs and CEOs really love making the product. Like, oh my God, I made this product. Um, and it's so cool. And I, and I want to keep innovating on it. Um, if that's what you love to do, and that's only what you love to do, be careful about being a CEO. Um, because that's not what you do every day. Um, and that's what we talked a little earlier about the transition from, you know, do I bring in a CEO or whatever it is? Listen, maybe you want to be the head of product development. Mm -hmm. um, and you bring in a CEO and you lose a little bit of control on those things. Now, you got to then at least buy into that decision, right? So this person now is making all those other decisions with obviously a collaborative approach, but you don't, that's not your decision anymore. So I, I, that's why I think, that's why, you know, Scott and Blake and I, you know, we, we worked so well together is they were extremely, extremely aware of what they wanted to do and what mm -hmm. they were good at. And, and I think the, the lack of ego and, and, and being that humble about it is, 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 was incredible. It worked out obviously extremely well. Right. It becomes less about you and more about the company as a whole. The maybe the identity shift, you know, happens especially with experience. So I think a lot of early founders, it's like this is my company, I build it. This is with my product. It's very like you're very attached to it. Um, whereas as you grow and expand, you have to start separating that quite a bit. Yeah, once you built the company, it's about the company, right? And it's about its shareholders, right? So if you yeah. have investors or whoever it is, 
you're shepherds of their money and you're shepherds of their, the, the future of those things. If you really yes. break down what a company is, when you take outside capital is you're trying to create value for your shareholders plus your employees mm-hmm. while also hopefully, you know, creating a difference in, in the world, right? I mean, that's what, what, what our mission is here, but, you know, we get measured by certain things. And so, you know, once again, you, you've got to put that aside. My focus is every day to you know, read that customer feedback channel or read that internal employee chat channel and, and see super happy people. Right. Like, like that's like, once again, like I always say this to people, you know, every day you wake up and you go to sleep like everybody else. And if there was a happiness metric on your day that was rising above your head, like in a Black Mirror episode or something like that, <laughs> then, you know, what would it score? And if you can make as many people in your company, you know, close to a 10 every day, then you're doing a great job as a CEO. And as we wrap up here, what are some final words of wisdom? You've already shared so many amazing, you know, so much amazing advice and insights, but what are some final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with any aspiring executives or business leaders out there tuning in or entrepreneurs? You know, I, I think once again, it, it, to everybody out there, put the ego aside, like really put the ego aside. There's no I in team, right? Everybody says right. that. It, it really is that way. Um, recruit the best people, um, let them do their jobs help guide them, help, help their careers grow. Um, but let go a little bit, you mm-hmm. know, let go. It's super important um, to let go and let in delegate and let people, you know, people shine at what they're doing. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing. And by the way, listen, it's easy for me to say that I didn't start these companies and I'm taking over at a certain stage, but um, I've seen it too, happen too often, right? Where it, an early stage entrepreneur, you know, is so like the company is theirs. It's their company. Mm-hmm. And eventually it, it hurts them either, you know, they get a board of directors and they get moved out of the company or whatever it may be, or they fall on their own sword because they haven't really been able to delegate and scale past a certain level. So many companies die between, you know, half a million dollars of revenue and $5 million of revenue because they can't make that second step. And it, it, it tends to happen either product market fit. So we'll ignore that because product market fit is always something right. that you can't break through, but um, it tends to happen because you're not able to really build the right team and, and, and delegate out. So that, I mean, that's one thing I've learned um, is, is recruit great people and let them do their jobs. Perfect. And what's next for Byte? What can we um, see coming out next or what's the uh, grand vision for the future? You know, the grand vision is, is very simple. We want to change the world one smile at a time. So, you know, you're going to see us go global. Um, You're going to see us work with more and more of the industry. We believe more and more dentistry. You know, the real concept at Byte is um, more people should be focused on oral care than they do today. Bad oral care has uh, leads to a higher propensity of diabetes, of heart disease, of a bunch of stuff that people don't really relate to. Uh, Most people don't know about. Mm-hmm. And so our goal is, is that we can bring in other communities. Like I mentioned earlier, I think we over-indexed African-American communities by 5X and Latino communities by 4 or 5X. And all these communities that are underserved. And what's happening after that is those folks are coming into the oral care industry, right? They're now brushing more because they've spent the money on their teeth. And they're coming into dentist offices because they want to get their teeth cleaned or whatever it may be. Um, our mission is to everybody should afford that uh, opportunity. And so you'll see us do a lot more stuff out of our Bike Cares program, um, which is about you know sustainability as well. We want to recycle every aligner out there, um, and a lot of stuff in and around improving smiles and, and focusing on these communities 
um, that need this. So, so that's the next evolution, and that's not just in the U.S., right? You know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I'd love to be at a, you know, an, an Indian village and seeing somebody on Vitaliners or in China or yeah. in, you know, yeah. South America. Um, and so that's, I think that's what you're going to see at Byte. And we're going to be doing that with, with Densply Serona as our, as our partner. They're a global company. They've got people in every country. I think Don was telling me they've got, you know, people in a hundred countries across, across the globe. And so we will, we will be leveraging our, our partner and, and, and growing Byte. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see Byte's continued success. Thank you so much for being on the show and happy 11th birthday to your son. Yeah, thank you, Lee. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.